0: Auto Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, I was just mugging for the camera there. (laughs) Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium, and this is The Conspiracy Show. I am Richard Serrett. Come on in. Find a peg by the door, hang up your cloak, grab a stool, come sit over here and warm yourself by the fire. Smoke them if you got them. You are among friends. Uh, Daniel Estulin is standing by. Daniel wrote the huge uh, bestseller, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. I'll tell you about a a documentary that he's uh, produced that's coming out very soon, a little bit later. And he has uh, come out with another one. He's done it again. This is going to send shockwaves uh, throughout the world, I'm sure. Uh, It's called Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering the Masses. And uh, we'll talk about that in just a few moments. Ian Robertson is here behind the glass, twisting the knobs and dials. He's basically piloting this mothership. Uh, and on a, on a sad note, I hope I'm, I'm not uh, telling tales out of school, but Ian lost his dog on a Thursday. Uh, this was a 14-year-old uh, border collie Australian sheepdog dog mix. What was uh, your dog's name again, Ian? Kelty? Kelty. Kelty. Yeah, he's a good little dude. He was a good little dude, yeah. And this was uh, this was Ian's uh, companion, since Ian was like 7 or 8, because you're 21, 22 years old. So uh, a heavy loss uh, for Ian, but I know your dog was well-loved and cared for and had a great life. And uh, uh, it's always tough losing a pet, but uh, we're thinking about you, Ian. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, Albert Vinzel, my story producer, is here running our Hangout on Air. And if you want to watch the show, live stream it on YouTube. Uh, you can go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. Let me spell the last name, S Y R E T. Richard Serrett. Click on the HOA link, that's at or near the top of the feed, and you are in. Uh, if you don't catch the live stream, you can go back and watch it later. Just go to our YouTube channel, The Conspiracy Show. All right, to the main entree we go. Uh, let me crib here from the back of Daniel Estulin's latest book. The Tavistock Institute in Sussex, England, describes itself as a non-profit charity that applies social science to contemporary issues and problems. But this book posits that it is the world's center for mass brainwashing, and Social Engineering Activities. Daniel Eslin is an award-winning investigative journalist and best-selling author of The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. Other books include Shadow Masters, Deconstructing WikiLeaks, Trans Evolution, and the novel The Octopus Deception. He's been featured on Jesse Ventura's Conspiracy Theory TV show and in the Alex Jones documentary, Endgame, Blueprint for Global Enslavement. And Daniel has a new documentary on the Bilderberg Group, Scheduled for worldwide release very soon. Daniel Estelin, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. It's been ages. How are you? Yeah, Richard. Good evening. No, actually, good morning on this side of
1: the of the pond. Uh, it's great to be with you.
0: And great to have you back. It's been uh, well. We, you and I, we talked on Skype uh, several weeks ago. But uh, I'm trying to remember the last time I we talked on the radio show. I may have been up the street at I another station. Like years ago the book many. Book that's right. Many years ago. So are you? Are you in? Full, uh, you're up full time. Now? Are you living I'm in Europe
1: full-time, that's right, yeah. Yes. i just getting uh, the documentary up and running, and that's going to be up uh, in the next couple of weeks or so, and uh, as soon as it's done, uh, we'll be ready to embark on a world tour.
0: All right, Tavistock Institute, fascinating uh, subject matter, and um, let's let's begin talking a little bit about the origin. When when was the Tavistock Institute uh, formed, I guess, and, and who were the people behind it? It was formed
1: uh, in the, in the nineteen twenty under its uh, founder, Dr. Hugh Cruden Miller's leadership, um, when it was called the Tavistock Clinic. And then uh, shortly after the Second World War, it became uh, um, a Rockefeller-controlled institution and turned into a Tavistock Institute for Human Relations, which is basically is a psychological warfare arm of the British royal family. And it's located in a suburb of London in uh, the city called Sussex, England. And uh, in the 1930s, the Tavistock Institute basically developed this symbiotic relationship with the Frankfurt Institute for Social Research, which is a key research uh, institute also financed by the Rockefellers and uh, organized by people like Adorno. And their collaboration led them to basically analyze the culture of a population from a neo-Freudian standpoint. Nazism just happened to have been one of its patients on a psychiatric couch.
0: Well, um, is it true... Uh, that um, Well, Adolf Hitler uh, had a sister, I believe, who lived in Liverpool. And um, uh, sister or an aunt, I'm not sure, but you'll, you'll, you'll uh, sort this out for me, I'm sure. But it, it is suggested that uh, Hitler may have spent some time at the Tavistock Institute. And I think it was his sister who reported that he would uh, sort of come back and forth between London and Liverpool... Uh, and, and his behavior was very odd. He stayed with her a while in Liverpool. Is that, is that a true story?
1: I, I don't, I don't think so. I, I mean, I've heard that before and I kind of looked into it, but no, I didn't find any, uh, any proof. Of it. But what, what there is, obviously, is a lot of information on the, on the Nazis, on, on, you know, on Hitler, on the Nazi calls, on Carl Jung, you know, on this whole neo Freudian relationship, which is a very interesting, you know, uh, point to discuss if you never can go into
0: it. Absolutely um i mean what is the connection between carl jung and 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 freud and i guess uh the tavistock institute or or even just brainwashing
1: well you know one key neo-freudian who became this overt supporter of the nazis was the swiss uh, psychoanalyst carl jung whose friendship with freud ended over the latter's refusal to see value in gnostic mysticism freud who was opposed to integrating mystical ideas into psychoanalysis associated the, the word mysticism with seances, voices from other worlds, noises, you know, apparitions, levitation, trances, prophecies, and so on and so forth. Now, Jung saw in Hitler the the apotheosis of Jung's own search for a kind of uh, pagan communion with the beyond, a search that began back in 1915 with Jung's colossal, you know, nervous breakdown in his 1997 essay on the subject of Hitler and Jung, uh, Wolf, uh, um, uh, which is one of the authorities on the subject, believes that there's this, the strongest possible connection between Jung's psychoanalytic theories, uh, which form one of the conceptual bases of New Age ideology today and his fascination with Hitler. You see, uh, Richard, for Jung... Was obsessed by the notion that the deepest reality, the greatest truth lay buried in the unconscious and the mystical psychotic aspect of man's mind as opposed to the rational outward scientific Judeo-Christian view of the world. And that was the the basis of Jung's decades long search through himself uh, attempting to find a pre-existing myth of or, or, or mythic system, which aptly illustrated his ideas about the human psychology of religion. And so he began with Gnosticism, then wanted to study astrology, and then uh, um, speculative alchemy as a kind of uh, um, symbolic system. And uh, if you kind of analyze a lot of this uh, material, you'll realize that, that to Carl Jung there's this deep uh, substratum of of consciousness that lies beneath the layers of mechanical instincts and the measurable phenomena of political psychology. A lot, uh, John called it the collective unconscious. I'm sure everybody's familiar with that phrase. And, sure. and that's where, you know, that Cook's uh, analysis and background comes from. And, and, you know, and in turn, these images which, you know, he so often described as, you know, these religious rituals and so on and so forth, this uh, pattern or, or matrix underlying the observed universe, a kind of a grid of connections Linking events according to a system we can only barely perceive are manipulated by the unseen hand of the brainwashers of the Tavistock Institute and also Frankfurt uh, School and people like uh, Theodore Nordner. The,
0: the coat of arms for the Tavistock Institute is kind of, uh, not kind of, it's very interesting. We, we see uh, three owls and a, a, a sheep. Uh, that's being sort of suspended by some kind of a uh, a, a harness around its midsection. Uh, what what is the uh, what is the meaning behind this this coat of arms for the Tavistock Institute?
1: It's actually the coat of arms that you're talking about on the cover of the book. It's uh, my publisher's idea, Chris Milligan. Owl of course represents wisdom in 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 mythology and you know in ancient religions and uh, and so the idea is that you know it's also something you know keeps watch at night. And so the idea of, you know, using the coat of arms and, and, uh, and an owl is, you know, to project strength, as so many ancient cultures did uh, throughout centuries.
0: Uh, of course, then the owl is um, also uh, a prominent symbol at the, um, uh, I guess, the playground of the elites in, uh, in, in California.
1: Exactly. Uh, right, exactly. You know, Bohemian Grove, Bohemian Grove yes. Jones. Uh, while people infiltrated them once, I think it was like ten years ago or something like that.
0: All right. Um, what is the um, the the mission statement or the uh, intended objective? Not the, the 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 stated one, not the the one for public consumption. But what is what is? Do you believe the the secret uh, mission of the Tavistock Institute? What are they trying to do? What's their goal?
1: Uh, you know, if you look at it, the purpose of these, uh, you know, behavior modifications, it's literally, you know, to bring about forced change to our way of life without our agreement and without ever realizing of what is happening to us. The ultimate goal being the, you know, this complete extirpation of mankind's inner sense of identity, the the tearing out of, man's, of mankind's innermost soul and the placement in the vacant space of an artificial synthetic soul soul. But in order, to, you know, in order to change mankind's behavior away from the industrial production to spiritualism and also to bring us willful into the world of post-industrial era of zero growth and zero progress, one must force first a change in mankind's you know, self-image, its fundamental conception of what we are as people. And so thus the image of man appropriate to that new era must be sought, synthesized, and then wired Into mankind's brain, and this is something that you know these people have been after since the you know the the creation of Tavistock Clinic back in uh, you know at the end of the the first World War, and you know uh, really taken off with Rockefeller's uh, patronage beginning in 1947, right at the end of the Second World War, when Tavistock Clinic turned into Tavistock Institute for Human Relations.
0: Um, Now, when you say take us back to a a a period of Sort of zero growth, zero development. It sounds like what you're saying or describing is a return to a feudal age. Is that a fair assessment? Well, you know,
1: again, if you kind of look at it, uh, progress and development of society is directly proportional to population density. Uh, so, from the point of view of the elite, if you're looking at the planet Earth, which is a small planet with limited natural resources and an ever-growing population base, so if you're the elite, you don't need more people on planet Earth. So, the idea of, of deindustrialization. Zero growth, demand destruction uh, plays into their hands because, again, progress and development of society is directly proportional to population density. So there's more people, more growth, uh, more wealth, uh, which means you're going to have, you know, much bigger population base. And on a planet with limited natural resources, you don't need that. So they did what they're trying to do is industrialize the world and bring this, you know, the concept of, of zero growth, uh, population reduction. Industrialization. We have a, you know, a prototype for that in the United States called Detroit.
0: <laughs> kind of at Detroit <laughs> very true. Do. Listen, we got to take a time out, yeah. uh, Daniel. We will come back. Tavistock Institute, uh, you might even call it the think tank for the New World Order. Back with more right here on The Conspiracy Show. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett all righty. Welcome back. Daniel Estelin is with us, the author of Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering the Masses. And, of course, you'll remember uh, his other book, The True Story of the Bilderberg Group. And a documentary is uh, due out any time soon, and uh, you'll be able to see it. We'll tell you details uh, on that as well. All right. Back to the Tavistock Institute. Um, we were talking about its, its uh, unstated objective. Would it be fair to say... Uh, that they are trying to condition uh, humanity into accepting author- authoritarian rule. Would that be a fair assessment?
1: Well, absolutely. It's uh, if you kind of look at behavior modification, you can go, you know, to the first examples of this authoritarian rule back to the 1940s, which was the turning point for the you know Rockefeller strategy of behavior modification, brainwashing. Co-determination, co-participation, you know, corporativism for the takeover of the United States, and also world labor movement. And uh, basically, as the war wound down, Rockefeller changed the psychology of the workers in ways essential to the way that you know he would rule the United States organized labor movement from uh, from then on. And one of the key individuals, if you're actually talking about the uh, um, the, the people who had uh, such a large role in organizing this behavior modification was a psychologist by the name of Kurt Lewin. Now, Lewin was the the father of group dynamics, and one of uh, John Rowling Reese, who is the founder of Tavistar Clinic, uh, first cadre recruits who began his career at Cornell University, where he basically worked on a systematic series of studies of the effect of social pressure on the eating habits of children. Now this Kurt Lewin uh, character, he came to the United States in 1933, was a refugee from Nazi Germany. So Lewin, like many other German intellectuals, was literally forced out of Germany, not because of any uh, basic political differences with us, you know, but as a sacrifice to Hitler's divide and conquer anti-Semitism. And so Lewin, in fact, is noted for his uh, refinement of the Nazi formulated leaderless group technique into a sophisticated tool of counterintelligence. Now, Lewin's uh, most significant proposal, which was made during the whole period of World War II and its immediate aftermath, was his conception of fascism with a democratic face. It's something you see right now in the United States. The common uh, psychopathological feature of all fascist demand is infantilism, who defines himself by his uh, attempts to impose the principle of the autonomous extended family. And to block out the reality of of the outer world. So, for example, you know, nationalism, you could call it mother country, uh, racialism, that would be mother, language group, that would be mother tongue, cultural affinity group, that would be, uh, family traditions, community, that would be extended family and also neighborhoods. In other words, um, individuals, uh, working with, you know, these kinds of ind- people such as, uh, John Rowan Reese and, and Carl Lewin. Uh, you're looking at the different set of brainwashing tactics uh, which they use to impose their will on the rest of society.
0: Well, when we think of brainwashing, uh, you know, we think automatically of, of uh, you know Hitler's propaganda minister Joseph uh, Goebbels, uh, Goebbels, and uh, uh, you know, repeat the uh, the lie often enough, and uh, you know, repetition is essential, uh, repeated affirmation. Um, other propaganda techniques, brainwashing techniques, of course, many of those perfected by by the Nazis. Um, I mean, were those techniques perfected at Tavistock, and was was someone like a, a, a Goebbels was he receiving instructions from the Tavistock?
1: Not so much so, but you know, certainly, I think Tavistock actually learned a lot more from the Nazis than the Nazi did from Tavistock, you know, and, and the first, you know, case of, of how this brainwashing really works was, was radio. In, in the case of Nazi, Nazi Germany, coming across the radio, you know, think about it, you had millions, you know, millions of homes was the voice of one man, Adolf Hitler. In fact, that all of Germany was hearing his voice at the same time gave um, an enhanced power to the message. So the listener was literally part of this mass experience Taking it all in from the emotionally non-thinking set of reference points. So, Hitler's speeches were some of the first mass media events in history, as carefully staged as any event in, in modern history. So, both Tavistock and also Frankfurt School paid very close attention to Nazi propaganda techniques, which they willingly incorporated into their research. And the aim of this project, as stated by Theodore Adorno's introduction to the sociology of music. Was to program a mass culture as a form of um, extensive social control that would steadily degrade its consumers. And the application of their research into human behavior was set to launch a decade later in this major irreversible cultural revolution in America. And so basically, the brainwashers concluded that uh, mass media events had caused people to suspend their belief in reality. And the first You know, shot of that was, again, you know, via radio in, in, in Nazi Germany. And when you suspend this belief in reality, they basically had, in fact, been willing to accept uncritically things being said, which if they had, you know, heard in another context, they would probably, you know, most likely have rejected. Now, you know, think back to today. How insane are some of the things that we have, you know, been told by our leaders? Weapons of mass destruction in Iraq. Iranian mullahs allegedly threatening, you know, the security of the United States, A Libyan, you know, leader, Muammar Gaddafi, supplying his troops with Viagra in order to rape women, you know, participating in the rebellion, Osama bin Laden's death. You know, it, there's just so many of these, and you kind of, you know, look at it and think about it, and you say to yourself, you know, how, how brain-dead are these people to actually accept some of these explanations? Well, what basically happened was, is that during the Second World War, uh, this, this uh, individual by the name of Bruno Bethelheim who's a you know, neo-Freudian he published this psychological analysis of the Nazi period at the behest of the network of brainwashers associated with the Tavistock Institute so this Bethelheim described how under extreme doubt and terror the individual will regress to an increasingly more infantile state and in that condition, the inmates of the Nazi concentration camps literally started to mirror the personalities and mannerisms of the oppressors, the SS guards. in as this widely circulated version of his work, the informed heart, it was called, he indicated that, you know, life outside the concentration camps mirrored the psychological disintegration taking place inside. In other words, all German citizens were becoming uh, more infantile, less able to act as reasonable, uh, reasonable adults, and that's where this whole thing about the, you know, the good German comes from. In other words, the good German had to be unseen, and also dumb. It is one thing to, you know, behave like a child because one is a child. It is quite another thing to be an adult and have to force oneself to assume childish behavior. It was not just, you know, coercion by others into this helpless dependency. It was also the clean splitting of the personality, which to achieved later. You know, know, basing their analysis and research on what was done in Nazi Germany. In other words, you know, men's anxiety, his wish to protect life, forced him to relinquish what was ultimately his best chance of survival. In other words, his ability to react and make appropriate decisions. And these, of course, needless to say, or, you know, began in Nazi Germany as experiments.
0: How uh, important was the medium of radio, um uh in terms of the success of, of of hitler i I'm just trying to imagine how what what Hitler may have been able to accomplish had he had television at his disposal
1: i you know i think we know what Hitler would have accomplished if had he had television. We see it today you know in all over the world the of society, which is the direct you know result of everything that we've learned from you know, Tavistock's uh, endless experiences and and uh Uh, over the past,
0: uh, you know, six decades or so. I want to move ahead and I want to talk about uh, uh, the 1960s and the British invasion, uh, which, as it turns out, may have been just that, the British invasion. When we're talking about uh, these, uh, you know, the mercy beat and the arrival on America's shores of of the Beatles and later the Rolling Stones and the Who and um, the animals and, and so on and so forth. Uh, And and, um, uh, media scientist Nelson Thal, who joins us on the program quite frequently, in an episode on my TV show, we talked about the assassination of John Lennon, and he brought up the Tavistock Institute uh, and um, suggested that the Beatles may have been, in large measure, a psychological warfare experiment created by the Tavistock Institute. Uh, What say you?
1: Um, you know, I don't doubt it. I mean, there's just a lot of material out there. If you kind of look at the whole '60s period, look at the you know the whole meaning of counterculture. You know, you could talk about British invasion. You could talk about the undeclared cultural war against America's youth, which you know began in earnest in 1967 when Tavistock began using open you um, know rock concerts to attract over four, I think almost five actually, million young people to so-called festivals and you know, unknown to most people, the, the youth became the victims of this planned, wide-scale drug experimentation. You know, we're talking about the hallucinogenic drugs, uh, such as, you know, STP, uh, PCPs, MDAs, DMTs, you know, Bills, promoted LSD, and also, you know, Blue Micro Dot LSD-25. You know, all these drugs were freely distributed at these concerts, and before long, you had over 50 Million of these attendees between the ages of 10 and 25 years old, you know, who return home to become the messengers and promoters of this new drug culture or later, you know, became known as the new age. And so what happens with the hallucinogenic drugs, they're, you know, psychometrics, meaning that they mimic certain aspects of psychosis. And so through the use of these hallucinogenic drugs, one can literally induce temporary symptoms of psychosis and schizophrenia. And so most users of these drugs at the time experienced whole personality changes causing total alterations of the senses. And so the intention of the LSD drug scene and the controlled environment it represented, it wasn't accidental Richard, but completely intentional. And so the Tavistock Institute had extensively uh, studied the relationship between the brain and behavior caused by these drugs. And later on, the knowledge gleaned from the research was channeled into marketing MTV and radio stations through, you know, classic these songs from 15 to 25 years ago, which are targeted, you know, at the adult population. And so what several Tavistock studies showed that a song or a piece of music associated with one's childhood, one heard later in life, could call forth memories and associations of that earlier period. And so you had literally this encoded memories of popular music in the listener recalled when he or she heard the same piece of music from like 25 years ago. And, you know, kind of, you know, think back to, you know, any time you hear something from like, you know, the 1980s, uh, you know, and then you kind of go back and, you know, think how you feel. Or oh, imagine if you are on drugs, that whole experience will be reproduced and again and again. So these... Memories basically triggered in this, an emotional drug flashback that set off an infantile emotional state that brought the listener back to that time in which he or she literally experienced either an identity, you know, or or crisis or some kind of, you know, uh, situation where it was mirroring the drug, the drug reaction itself. And if you kind of look, you know, what you're talking about, you know, the sixties and the music, uh, you know, let's go back to the Monterey pop. Which was the first commercial American rock festival, officially dubbed the first annual Monterey International Pop Festival, which was held in June 1967. You know, two years before Woodstock, when over 200,000 young people gathered in and around the Monterey Country Fairgrounds in Northern California for a three-day celebration, which is basically you know celebration you know classified as psychedelics, you know using you know LSD and everything else. Now. What people don't understand is that one of the organizers of the Monterey Festival was John Phillips, the member of the Mamas and the Papas rock group, and also the former press agent for the Beatles. And so Phillips was closely linked with Roman Polanski and his wife, Sharon Tate, Mama Cass, uh, Dennis Wilson of the Beach Boys, and also many other Hollywood celebrities, who in turn were linked to the Charles Manson's family. So well, what's interesting, what I discovered in my research...
0: I'm just going to get you to... Daniel, excuse members, me. I, I'm, I'm going to no, get you to I hold on. Fact
1: that, you know, Sorry,
0: Daniel, support. I need you to hold on, if you could. We're just coming into a break. My apologies. Okay. We'll, we'll pick up on Monterey uh, and John Phillips and the connection uh, with Polanski and, and uh, Charles Manson and so much more. Stay with us here on The Conspiracy Show. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarah Daniel Estelin stays with us. And the new book is Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering the Masses. We were talking about the Monterey Pop Festival 1967 and uh, sort of the way of introducing LSD into the uh, American subculture. And you were talking about some of the participants, John Phillips from the uh, Mamas and the Papas. He was associated in some capacity with uh, film director Roman Polanski and of Sharon Tate, his wife, who was, of course, murdered by Charlie Manson's family. Pick it up from there.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's, it's fascinating, all these characters, how they all kind of intertwine, you know, with with these social experiments and also Tavis, target Mama Cass and John Phillips. You know, they were connected to the Manson family through the Cross of Church of the Final Judgment, which was an offshoot of the church of scientology founded in england in the mid 1960s by a couple of former scientologists robert and Marianne de grimston now formed sometime in 63 64 the process church of the final judgment it was a kind of a mixture of reincarnation existentialism an attempt to uh, you know merge the worship of jehovah lucifer and also a bit of this you know neo nazi flavor it is significant richard that the the process's legal work was handled by an elite Wall Street law firm, Morrison McVeigh, whose main backer was American Family Foundation, who used uh, intelligence-connected mind control experts such as, you know, uh, LSD researcher Dr. Louis Jolius West to orchestrate cult anti-cult hysteria, which is another, you know, part of Tavistock research. Uh, so you basically, you know, like Hegelian dialectic, you control both sides of the equation. So this, you know, this L. O. D. researcher, Dr. West, he was a major participant in the CIA's McCultra, which came out of Talystock Institute's studies of Nazi social control techniques. You know, people with only passing knowledge of the Manson case usually don't realize that the Beach Boys recorded one of Manson's songs and released it as the uh, B-side of their cover of the old, you know, Earl Scruggs' 1958 hit "Bluebirds Over the Mountain." a song about, about uh, lost love. Now, the title of the song was suggestive of a CIA mind control operation, which was called, which was called Bluebird, which was a program for um, exploring the uses of hypnosis and other means to protect the recently created CIA and its personnel from enemy uh, psychic penetration, which was called Bluebird. So the question that I ask in the book is, you know, is there a reason why Manson's song was on the flip side of the bluebird cover of the CIA's bluebird escaped? And was Manson a bluebird? In other words, a mind control subject got a mock. These are some of the things, you know, that are fascinating when, you know, when you actually go down the rabbit hole, you know, Richard, there's no end to it.
0: Timothy Leary's LSD experiments at Harvard University. Is there a connection there with the Tavistock?
1: Well, absolutely. I mean, all of these people were related. And again, you know, you go back to the open-air concerts, you know, you go to Woodstock Music and Art Fair, you know, which Time Magazine labeled, you know, the Aquarian Festival, and history's, you know, largest happening. And basically in the process, Woodstock and Tillis and Leary, you know, they became part of this cultural lexicon. And, you know, if you kind of look at the meaning itself of the Aquarian conspiracy or the Aquarian Festival, publicists were very careful... In choosing the terminology aquarium because, according to astronomers, the ages progress in you know in retrograde motion, going in the opposite direction as the Sun, which moves from the age of Aquarius into the age of pieces into the age of areas and so forth. And so, we kind of follow the astrological beliefs. The age of pieces, which is you know an artifact of the uh, precession of the equinoxes, is the time span of about. 200 bc until the current day which is approximately every 2160 years you know the, the procession of the equinoxes appears to rotate the spring equinox from one constellation to another so we appear you know to be you know ending this age of pieces and beginning of the age of aquarius and moving into this age of aquarius you know signifies that the age of pieces which is the age of christ has literally come to an end and again if you kind of Go to and see who put it together, who orchestrated, who financed it. You clearly see the hand of all these very private secret organizations such as the Tavistock Clinic, the Rockefellers, etc., etc., as well as you can also look at uh, you know some of the uh, big record publishers such as you know EMI, which is uh, uh, electric, you know, electric music industries, which everybody knows. What people don't know when you're talking about EMI is that... Uh, a man who actually was credited with Woodstock's creation was a man by the name of Artie Kornfeld, which was the director of Capitol Records, which is, you know, was owned at the time by EMI. And EMI, aside from being a music producer, uh, is also one of Britain's largest producers of military electronics and a key member of Britain's military intelligence establishment as a kind of military contractor to the British War Office. So if you kind of, you know, look at this again, you have the, the British royal family, you have the crown, the Tavistock Institute, which is, you know, British through and through, all behind all of these, you know, uh, uh, fads and, 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 you know, and uh, and
0: uh, well, they've got their tentacles like the everywhere. They have their tentacles everywhere. Daniel, stay, uh, stay tuned. We will uh, pick it up on the other side. Tavistock Institute, social engineering the masses. And uh, Daniel has your antidote right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarah. All right, Daniel Estelin stays with us. One more segment. And again, Tavistock Institute, social engineering, the masses. That's uh, available, I'm guessing, on uh, Amazon. Daniel?
1: Well, you can get it on Amazon. You can get it via my uh, publisher, which is trying trinday.com. Dot Neto, dot com. But uh, it's uh, uh, it came out in Spain a couple of years ago. It was the number one uh, bestseller for about uh, almost uh, 20 weeks. And uh, it's doing very well in the States right now. It came out about a month ago.
0: They love you in Spain. Um, what is it about? I mean, you do very well over here too, but uh, they, they seem to be very open and receptive to what you have to say and what you write about uh, over in Europe. Why is that?
1: Um, I'm not sure it depends where you know in Spain I you know I was lucky that the I was published you know Bilderberg was picked up ten years ago when it first came out by uh, the third largest uh, publishing company in the world called Planeta and you know they do about three billion dollars worth of business per year and there's only two other companies in the world one of them is you know Burlesman, uh, who do more business than they do and so that gave me you know instant credibility on the world stage and you know now ten years later with almost seven million books sold you know and 70 countries and translated in 42 languages and now you know as you know nominated for nobel and then you know pull it to price for my you know previous book it you know it's it's uh it you know adds to this credibility hard-earned credibility i should say over the years of getting this you know very important information out to the public yes Spain is you know they're very open to this kind of stuff and uh also italy and uh you know and, and portugal less so in, in germany and uh you know, in England, uh, you know, basically the doors are shut. I have not been able to publish any one of my 14 books in uh, in the United Kingdom.
0: Interesting. Interesting indeed. Um, I want to talk to you a little bit about advertising, um, which is, let's face it, it's a form of propaganda. Uh, but, I mean, propaganda, what is it? I mean, that's to be human is to be engaged in propaganda. We all do it. Uh, the question is, is it for... Uh, nefarious uh, purposes, or is it, you know, for something fairly innocuous? But I, 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 I was teaching a, a college uh, course in pop culture, and we were looking at some old uh, television and print ads from the 1950s, uh, in which, in, in the 50s, uh, they were, you know, even Santa Claus was um, advertising. Um, I think it was Lucky Strike cigarettes. Makes a great Christmas present. And uh, then we had doctors in their white uh, lab coats smoking. Four out of five doctors say you should smoke this particular brand. And um, mm-hmm. there were even ads about, uh, you know, never too soon to start feeding your baby 7-Up. Uh, I, I mean, I, you know, it's, it, it, I kid you not. I mean, you know the ads. But I, and I asked the class, do you think we're more savvy today? We're more sophisticated? um and we can see through these types of ads. What do you think? I mean, they're not—they're not, they're not um, as blatant as they were. But, I mean, what kind of propaganda techniques are they utilizing in in advertising these days?
1: Well, you know, it's funny you should say that because, you know, after World War II, it was actually Paul uh, Lazarsfeld, the director of the Bureau of Applied Social Research at Columbia University, and who especially, you know, pioneered the use catalyzed American voting behavior, and also by the you know, 1952 presidential election, along with Madison Avenue, you know, advertising agencies that were firmly in control of Dwight Eisenhower's, you know, campaign, utilizing Lazarus's work. So basically, you know, the power of television, and its hypnotic influence on the electorate became a reality in the 52 elections, you know, and ever since. So you have, you know, the, uh, the famous Batten-Barton, Durston and Osborne, you know, ad agency, which designed, you know, Ike's campaign appearances entirely for the TV cameras, as carefully as Hitler's Nuremberg rallies. You know, you had one-minute spot advertisements were pioneered to cater to the, you know, survey-determined needs for the voters. And so, you know, this snowball has not stopped rolling since, you know, the, the entire development of television and propaganda and advertising in the 1960s uh, 50s and the 60s, you know, it was pioneered by many women who were trained in the Frankfurt School's techniques, you know, of mass alienation. And Frank Stanton went directly from, Did we- you know, the single most important leader of modern television. And so basically what you have is, you know, this whole idea, uh, Richard, behind this type of, you know, you call it propaganda, call it social brainwashing, is to better understand the electorate's response You know, to policy dictates of the elite. So if you want people to believe something, then all you have to do is get a poll taken that says that it's so and so and get it publicized, preferably on television. You know, and this is what these people have been doing ever since. You know, no matter how you look at, you know, propaganda really hasn't changed all that much. They've, you know, they've improved it obviously because of the new, new methodologies involved by, you know, the, the concept itself hasn't changed at all you know it started back in the nineteen early 1950s you know it just you just kept rolling
0: we just got a few minutes left I want to I want to dial back uh, last year and uh, your book trans evolution the coming age of human deconstruction um, when I think of trans evolution I think of uh, this movement uh, pursuit by not just the elites, but I guess those who aspire to be elites, and that is the quest for immortality, the merging of of humans with machines. What do you mean by the coming age of human deconstruction? the subtitle
1: well, basically, what I explained in that book, and this is the book that's nominated last year in the United States you know for Pulitzer Prize, which is the most important prize for journalism in America is i you know I, I create a three dimensional uh, um, a um, i guess model to explain. Uh, Transhumanism uh, 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 Space exploration uh, You know, nanotechnology You know, this whole technological development But, you know, the basic premise of the book Is that, uh, you know, the children Our children, you know, who are today Five, six, seven, eight years old They're the last 100% Humans, you know, human generation On the planet Earth Their children, you know, our grandchildren They're going to be you know a transhuman post human uh, men machines cyborgs beings who are not human as a result of you know um, a revolution in uh, synthetic biology and this is the you know the, the premise of the book you know the the this generational change that that you know we're seeing all around us and uh, you know we're seeing a lot of advertising right now in the newspapers about uh, and also articles obviously. And talking about, you know, conquest of the moon, space, going to moon and Mars, and so on and so forth. But it was actually in my book, Trans Evolution, the Coming Age of Human Deconstruction, which discussed it for the first time and explained, you know, the whole premise behind it. And the premise, to kind of look at it again, going back to what we talked earlier in, in the program about, you know, deindustrialization. Again, the planet Earth is a small <laughs> the planet with limited natural resources. And what basically has happened on the one hand, the elite are destroying the world's economy on purpose. And if people don't understand why they're doing this, again, if progress and development is proportional to population density, the Rockefellers of the world, they don't need more people on the planet Earth. They need fewer people because they already control the planet. What they need is to control the natural resources, water, food, etc. And so on the one hand, they're destroying the world's economy on purpose, de-industrializing and, uh and uh, reducing the world's population. But on the other hand, what they're doing is they're investing, you know, the, the gazillions of their dollars, and I'm talking about, you know, trillions, quadrillions of dollars of their wealth into this super futuristic technology that will make the difference between them, you know, the 0.01% and the rest of humanity greater than ever. And if you kind of look at, you know, a lot of these uh, uh, you know, hidden agendas of the government, these trillions of dollars that go missing, you know, and nobody knows where it, where it is and can't find it, you know, it's, I, I'm convinced that, you know, these trillions of dollars missing and Katherine Austin Fitz actually calculated, she was a former, you know, undersecretary for uh, housing and urban development with, uh, with, you know, Bush father. And she calculated this missing money is about $40 trillion. You know, and as she said in one of her conferences, if you put that $40 trillion in, you know, in, in, into a very conservative fund, you can actually run the world's economy on that. So if you actually have that money, and you use it for these hidden technologies, you can really, you know, make a difference between this 0.01% and the rest of humanity. And this is what I, you know, explain in the book, how all these elements, you know, from transhumanism, which is basically a step from, you know, humanism, of humanity, transhumanity, post-humanity, this whole stage of change and development of what we are as human beings to another state, something, you know, in the future, which is going to be a lot less human and a lot more machine. And, uh, you know, I explain how, this technology actually, you know, uh, uh, works and you know fuses itself, you know, with you know this uh, futuristic agendas and space explorations and so on and so forth. What well, you, yeah, I mean, it's true. You
0: you, you actually, actually demonize space. you demonize space space exploration in in the book. Why, why so?
1: I don't demonize space. I think it's fantastic. It's necessary because you know the future of humanity is in space. If you kind of look again at the planet Earth and you extrapolate. You know, our presence on the planet Earth, two or three generations, there's going to be simple. There's always going to be enough room on the planet for all of us. You know, because seven billion people you can put in the state of Texas, I mean, they're not going to be very comfortable. You know, you can fit them all in there. But what you're not going to have, you're going to have the natural resources. There's going to come a point in the development of humanity, you know, that, you know, that we're going to have to, you know, vacate planet Earth and go and live somewhere else. And so what we actually become, we, you know, we're changing from, planetary to you know this intergalactic civilization the first intergalactic civilization and it's necessary to actually conquer space because you know for me immortality is you know to assure the survival of the species and the only way we can survive as a species a million years from now is to actually conquer space you know go to the moon you know start building bases forward colonies go to mars you know and conquer the you know so you know million years from now you know there's gazillions of us living in every nuclear corner of the galaxies and also speaking of the natural resources all that you know that we don't have here over the dearth of the elements on the planet earth you know, have in space you know we're talking about uh you know the the, the how we're gonna heat the planet earth we're talking about you know running out of uh, oil uh, the next uh, step of uh, you know development after oil is you know nuclear after nuclear is fusion fission and what you have on, on the surface of the moon, for example, is an isotope called helium-3.
0: Yes, i talked about and that. And you have yeah. enough
1: of that on the surface, you know, if you actually bring it to planet Earth, uh, you know, to, to uh, have a clean uh, source of energy for the planet Earth for the next 2,000 years. So, again, I think it's, it's, it's marvelous that we're actually going into outer space. It, it all depends on, on, on how the elite are going to use that technology and all these natural resources. For the betterment of humanity, you know, for betterment of themselves against the rest of humanity.
0: Well, do you, do you, we we just got a, a minute here, but do you do you think it's possible that the elites uh, are already in, uh, off planet?
1: I don't have any proof of that. There's a lot of you know uh, chatter out there. You know, I've been to some very interesting conferences, and I've certainly heard a few very interesting things. You know like secret space conference that kind of stuff and there's a lot of people who are actually are convinced that you know that we already have bases on you know on the on the far side of the moon uh but I don't know I don't have any proof of that, and uh you know I'm very very careful not to be branded a conspiracy theory, so you know unless I can verify it and show you documents to prove it. You know, I'm, I'm, I prefer not, you know, not to express my opinion publicly.
0: Well, it's it's possible that Gary McKinnon uh, stumbled onto exactly those very documents when he hacked into it. Yeah, uh, it's
1: possible. It's, yeah. it's you know, it's within the realm of possibility. But uh, again, I haven't seen these documents.
0: Understood. Hey, Daniel, um, we look forward to the release of your uh, documentary on the uh, the Bilderbergs. Absolutely. And we'll have you back on when that comes out.
1: I look forward to coming to Toronto and actually presenting the film and. Uh, you know, and uh, giving, a, uh, giving a conference.
0: All right, and I will speak to you on Coast to Coast on the 26th of December.
1: Excellent. Looking very much forward to
0: it. All right, Daniel, thank you. Tavistock Institute, Social Engineering, the Masses. My website is StrangePlanet.ca. Follow me on Twitter at Richard Serrett, and as always, follow the truth.